Thank you, and I am so pleased to be here. Um, I think this is the first time that I've been here on a Sunday morning. We're actually here on a regular basis because uh, Taylor's graduations are held here. We've done this for years and years, and so I feel very comfortable here, even though this is the first time that uh, I've been here on a Sunday morning. As, uh, as Mark said, I've, I've known Mark since we came here. We came in the fall of 2004, and Mark was, in, uh, was a student at Taylor. I think you may have been in one of those first classes that I taught. I remember then in, in, in the seminary and things, uh, I was trying to remember whether you had a class with Jean. My, my wife taught, okay. <clears throat> so uh, we, uh, we know Mark, and I can't tell you how pleased we are. Uh, we at Taylor, we in the NAB, we, just, we were just so pleased when uh, you all kidnapped Mark from those other Baptists and brought him here. We were, we were just thrilled. Uh, we at Taylor know you well. I think you know us pretty well, too. And uh, we uh, bring you greetings from Taylor, and I, I also want you to know uh, you are in our prayers often. The leadership of our denomination is often a part of our prayers, and uh, we pray for our churches, and we keep up with what's going on here. And so even though we're on the other side of the city, uh, we, we feel like we're very closely connected to you. I was pleased when Mark asked if I would preach. Uh, I was pleased particularly that he said that you'll be preaching, he wanted me to preach when we were going through parables. Uh, Mark as soon as he came here, he said, hey, David, I want to come bring you out to preach sometime. And so we started trying to arrange a time, and it just seemed like one thing after another. Either I was out of, the, out of town, or I was speaking somewhere else, or it just seemed like over and over and over, things uh, kept getting in the way. And finally, I think one of these, one of these Blue Ocean trips, we, uh, we said, uh, okay, let's just work out a schedule. We've got to figure out when I can come and, and preach. And, and, things. and then he said it was on the parables. And uh, so we set this up, and it was a preaching on the parables. And I have to tell you, I love the parables. I love the parables in part because uh, I think Jesus loved parables. Parables were one of the primary ways that Jesus teaches. And so as, as we get started today, I want us to begin to lean in a little bit. I listened to some of the sermons to see how much of this might have been done in the past, and, and then I realized, hey, even if it was done six weeks ago, we could do it again. So uh, some of this may be new, some of this may be old hat to you, but uh, as we get started, I just want us to lean in a little bit, remind ourselves a bit about parables and what's going on in parables so that as we talk about the parable that I have been assigned, we have a we have a, a little bit of better way of, of getting into it and a, a little better understanding. So as I said, this is one of the ways Jesus loved to teach. He loved teaching in parables. And as soon as he, at least in Matthew, as soon as he begins to teach in parables, he gets questions from the, from the apostles and they, the disciples. They ask him, why do you teach in parables? And then he, he says something that is really interesting to us because you would think a teacher, and particularly Jesus, who's such a great communicator, uses all these stories that are so hands-on, they connect so well, there's so much about life as people actually live it. 
When he tells his disciples why he teaches in parables, he says, well, because I'm wanting to hide things as well as I'm wanting to reveal things. Parables have a very complex reality to them. They are hands-on, they are nuts and bolts, they're about common things in life. Jesus says, and through these, I'm going to reveal things to you, but also they hide things. Not everyone has eyes to see or ears to hear. So as we read parables, we just recognize they hide as well as they reveal. They highlight things to us, but you got to be able to see them. And Jesus says it's, it's as if your heart has to be ready to hear it. I think one of the reasons he says that is because when you read the parables, they're not just informing us of things, but they are often very disruptive. That is, they've got a twist. They've got a catch. They're trying to challenge us in a way that I think if you're often, if you've read the parables very much, uh, and if you can get into the world out of which the parables came, we see that they are quite a challenge. They are disruptive. They're trying to challenge us. They're trying to tweak us. They're trying to to provoke us. Part of that provoking is so that we understand things differently. He's trying to communicate things to us. And part of that provoking is that we get things wrong and we need to get them right. But one of the other major elements of parables is that he also provokes us about other people. That is, there's such a strong tendency for us as we go through our lives, as we live in the world, that we start creating certain uh, ways of interacting with people and patterns of understanding other people. And the parables often are disruptive in that sense. They challenge us to experience people, to treat people differently. Not just to understand things differently, but to actually uh, uh, to, to challenge the way people in our lives are understood. New Testament scholars tell us that if you look at all of the parables, there's a common theme in the vast majority of them, and it's what we call the great reversal. That is, there's a certain pattern for doing things that are, in fact, upside down. And this is normal. This is natural. We live in a world that has structured our relationships, structured our ideas, our understandings. And what God is trying to do is trying to flip that on us because most of the things, most of the ways we see things are in reverse. They're upside down. You probably are familiar with it. If, if you just remember some of the parables talking about the last will be first, that's what we're going to be talking about today. But to live, you have to die. To get, you have to give. It's, it's these normal things have to be reversed. So we get this sense of reversal. We get this th- sense of provoking We get this sense of God wanting to disrupt our lives, and we think, is this all that, is this just what Jesus is talking about? And if we think about the rest of the New Testament, we'll realize that this is, in fact, what Paul tells us. One passage, uh, Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, stop being conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. And, and this disruption that Paul is talking about in Romans 12, what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, what is talked about throughout the scriptures, this disruption is an extension of what Jesus is doing throughout his ministry, through much of his teaching, but particularly in his parables. We settle into patterns that God wants to disrupt, and Jesus gives us parables to do so. Today's parable is one of those disruptive parables. It is one of those parables that uh, I, I suppose you, you may be familiar with. We will become much more familiar with it after today. God wants to provoke us. God wants to disrupt our lives, and so we want to come before him and see how. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven... Jesus' great teaching. This is the context, this is the, or this is, the, this is the meaning of this parable. He's telling us about the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual day's wage, he sent them out into the vineyard. When he... Uh, when he went out about 9 o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into my vineyard, and I will pay you what's right. So they went. And he went out again about noon, and about 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. And about 5 o'clock, he went out and found others just standing around. And he said to them, why are you here? Why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you too, go into my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers together and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those who were hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us. Those of us who have worked in the scorching sun, burdened all day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual day wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, many of the parables 
you have to dissect the historical context a little bit to say, well, what's the shift? But my guess is as we read this, we feel the disruption as soon as we read it. We probably, if anything like you, I've, I've talked to four or five people about preaching this and that parable, and almost everyone that I've talked to has said the same thing. Good, that's, I never have gotten that parable. Because we have this same sense. When we read this, we say, that's not fair. How could he, is that your response? Do you read this? And say, I agree, that's not fair. A sign that the issues that are going on in our lives are not so different than the issues that were going on then. So we have to ask, what in the world is this parable about? What is Jesus trying to do? Is he trying to tell us that all of our businesses ought to pay the same amount no matter how long you work or no matter how hard you work or no matter the conditions of the work? Some of you may know the name Daniel Price. In 2004, Daniel Price, who started a business with his brother called Gravity uh, Payments, an internet billing company, I haven't been able to find out exactly why he did this or whether it was motivated by this parable, but he actually did this. It was back in 2014, and he made a dramatic pay salary change where everyone from himself as the CEO to the janitor all were paid $70,000 a year. Is this what he's talking about? Is he trying to tell us how to run a business? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe. But I think if we're going to understand what's going on in the parable, we need to lean into the context and we need to look at this parable a little bit more carefully. So as we look at context, we know we're going to need to go what goes before this. This final phrase, so the last will be first and the first will be last, is what this whole story has driven to. And to understand that, we have to go to the previous context in Matthew 20, uh, Matthew 19. For just prior to this, there's been a series of, uh, of uh, uh, happenings that... Uh, that you were probably familiar with. The, the, the rich ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, and Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, God. Why are you calling me good? He goes, good teacher, tell me how my, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know, obey the commandments, to love your neighbor, to uh, not kill, and not to murder, and all of these things. And the, the man comes to him and says, well, I've always done that. And he says, okay, well, here's one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he says, and he walks away. And then the disciples coming to Jesus say, well, we've sold everything. We've given up everything. We've left our houses and our homes. See, aren't we good? We're, we're a part of this, right? We're saved, right? Because what... 
the rich young ruler leaves with when they say, who could, who could possibly save? The disciples end with the question, well, well, then who can be saved if the rich have to give up everything? And then they begin to, to reflect on the fact that they've given everything. And they go to Jesus and say, but we've given up everything. We have given everything. How, what then will we have? Will we get eternal life? So this has happened just before this. And Jesus comes in. It says, truly I say to you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of glory, uh, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everything and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who will be first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, that's the immediate context. Eternal life, salvation. This rich man who refuses to sell everything, the disciples saying, we've done it, haven't we? Don't we get this? Won't we get eternal life? And then we get our parable. And then as soon as our parable is over, we go to the back context. Matthew 21, it says 21, this is actually the, the remainder of chapter 20, where Jesus, as soon as this parable is over, as soon as he says, the, many, the, the first will be last and the last will be first, he says, now they head to Jerusalem. Matthew says, now they go to Jerusalem, and Jesus begins to tell them that they're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Sadducees and the the uh, Gentiles are going to team up and they're going to beat him. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected again on the third day. And they go, what in the world is this about? And then the mother of James and John come. And they say, and the mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, when, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on your right and one of you sit on my left? So they're headed to Jerusalem. He tells them that they're going to die. And Jesus, or James and John's mother, is concerned about where they're going to sit in the kingdom. What do we do with this? This story placed right in the midst of this series of conversations about eternal life, the disciples status, the kingdom, what are we going to do? I want to suggest that this context helps us focus our attention on what's most important in this passage, in this parable. That is, it's a focus on disciples and what discipleship looks like, about receiving eternal life, about giving up and getting, about status, about service. Deeply embedded are the disciples' expectations of what are coming, and particularly their misconceptions of what is coming. So if that's the context, if that's what this is situated in, let's go back and reread the passage again 
a little more carefully with this in their background, with this in our mind. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire the laborers to work in his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for the usual day's wage, he sends them out into his vineyard to work. Classic scene, landowner needs some workers, so he goes out. Uh, some of your translations may talk about a denarius, because there's kind of a, there was a set amount of money that you should get for a full day's work in that day. And it was, it was relatively routine, and that's what denarius means. It means that day's wage for, for the work. And so he goes out, the landowner goes, he gets some people to work in his field, and he sends them out, and they start working. And then three hours later, about nine o'clock, oh, I went too far. Anyway, when he, he goes out about nine o'clock, he sees more standing around not doing anything in the marketplace. And he says, you also, you go out and you work and I'll pay you what's right. And then he goes out again at noon. And then he goes out at three. And he does the same thing. And the idea here is that he goes and he asks them, why are you standing around not doing anything? And he tells them, go into my field, work, and I'll pay you what's right. And they do the same. And then about five o'clock, an hour before it's all over, he goes out, he finds more people just standing around. And he says to them, why are you standing idle all day? Now, one way of thinking about this is recognizing the worker, the, the landowner's got lots and lots of stuff to do. He just needs more and more laborers to do it. But there's something else going on here. That is, if you were a, an owner and you were going out, you would want to get the best workers first. If you have people you're trying to hire, you want to get those who can do the best work for you. And so that first round of people, you're getting the best. Every round that he comes out, every time he goes, it's getting slimmer and slimmer pickings for good people. And I think this is part of the point. It's like back when you were in elementary school and you're picking teams. By the time you get to the, to the one hour before, <laughs> it's like, Oh, no, you take him. No, you take him. I mean, here you get people who are lazy, who are not wanting to work, who are standing around. All they have done all day is stood around idly doing nothing. So at the beginning, you're starting with really hard workers. These are people you would want. By the time you get to the end of the day, you've got more than just lots of work to do. Now you're beginning to see that the people who are here well, they may not even be all that good, hard of workers. The workforce has probably gotten pretty thin. Nevertheless, the landowner says, you too, go. Why are you, why are you uh, still standing around? And they say, because no one will have us. Because no one will hire us. So you also, you go into the vineyard. This is the setup. Now, when he's, evening comes and the owner of the vineyard said to the manager, call the laborer 
and give, I mean, call the laborers together and give them their pay. And the, tells the manager, and start with the last ones who came. The owner wants to make sure that everyone sees this. So look, notice this. It's not just that he wants to be generous. He's going to rub it in their faces how generous he is. He wants people to see him because in part, the point is his immense generosity, but also because this is as much about the laborers who have worked all day as it is about the generosity of the vine owner. And when those that had been hired at 5 o'clock came in, they received the usual daily wage. This would have been the you've got to be kidding moment. These people came with just one hour's work in the cool of the day as the sun is going down and you pay them for the full day? Wow! This is crazy! Of course, you begin to think, if you were this generous for one hour's work, amazing. And it comes and when the first came, they, now when the first came, now the people who had been there all day, when they came, they thought they would receive more. And this is the disruption, part of the disruption of the parable. See, what Jesus is trying to point out is these helpers, these workers, just like you and me, we can't help but compare what we get and what somebody else is getting. And when we compare, we have this whole background of lens of what we deserve, who's most valuable, we call them status letters, a pecking order, as we look out at what other people have, at what other people get of God's generosity to them, it is so natural for us. It's just a part of what we do when we hear it. We just can't help ourselves. But compare. They thought they would receive more. But each of them received the usual way, so they grumbled. They grumbled saying these who have worked for only one hour, you have made them equal to all of us. And notice what the owner is doing. Notice what they are doing. Wait a minute. The first chosen, the ones that everybody wanted, the ones who would work hard, who wouldn't complain, who would give certainly give you your money's worth, 
You are making them equal to those that you just drag in off the streets at the end who only give one hour, but who probably wouldn't give you an hour's worth of work for the whole day. How dare you? How dare you make them equal to us? And now we're getting to the heart of the impulse that Jesus is trying to drive out of us with this parable, which if you're anything like me, we share with this people. For this is us. And notice the owner's response. And he replies to them, friend. Now, that sounds like a word of endearment. It's not. This is a bit of a very, this is, this is a, a formal term. Friend. It kind of has an edge even when we use it. Friend. Okay, friend. Yeah, we're friends. But there's some distance here. Friend, I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree to work? for the usual day wage. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose? May I not do what I choose with what belongs to me? It's mine. I can do with it as I please. Or are you envious because I am generous? See, and here he just drives the parable right into our hearts. As he asks us, what does God's generosity to others do to you? And what is your heart like? How is your the literal Greek here uh, says, is your eye evil because you see I am good? Does my generosity to them make you envious? See, although there are a lot of characters here, there are really three main ones that are important to us. That Jesus drives the story home with. He ends the story. So the last will be first, and the first last. The three characters here are the vineyard owner, and everyone in the day, as we, as we tell the story, recognize that the vineyard owner is God. And there are those who work all day, and those who work only an hour. And the vineyard owner is radically generous. He is overwhelmingly generous. He does what he wants for those, he does what he wants with, he does whatever he pleases with what he has. But I think part of the issue from the parable is that he does it to those that nobody else wants to do good to. 
But those who have worked all day, we expect to get more. And when we don't, we grumble. And we're upset because others are made equal to us. Because at our heart, God's goodness really makes us envious. I think what this parable is wanting to ask us is if we are willing to attend to what is going on inside our hearts as we watch God's goodness and generosity to others. Of course, those folks who had only worked for one hour, nobody wanted us. Nobody wanted to hire us. Likely, we were, unwa- we, we were unwanted. Likely, there was good reasons. Idle, slothful, unwanted, uh, outcasts. God is good and generous to the undeserving and gracious beyond belief. That's what we see. And those who have worked today, God's God's generosity scandalizes even God's disciples, Jesus' disciples. Because our eyes are envious when we see God's generosity. And what do we learn? What do we see in those who have only worked one hour? Remember what they were told. Work in my vineyard. I'll pay you what is right. God's generosity to them is what was right. I think what this does is challenges our sense of right. See, when we think about what we deserve, when we think about what other people deserve, we bring all of these values and ways of understanding and ways of uh, hierarchicalizing things, and we have this system of what is right. And I think this parable is trying to fundamentally challenge that, that God's justice is profoundly different than our justice. It's not about what you deserve. It's not about what you think other people deserve. You don't know what you deserve. You don't, can't even imagine what others deserve. God's justice is seen in his generosity to us. And if that's what we see in this, what are we to do? I think we need to come to grips and praise God for this God who is radically generous. And we need to learn to anticipate his generosity so that we can rejoice in it as opposed to become envious because of it. I think this is a warning to us, particularly us, who have labored so long. Beware, you who are deeply formed in the patterns of what you deserve. 
of what should be coming to you. For you who have served me for a long time, beware, you who have worked long and hard, lest you seeing God's goodness makes you envious. Because what has been revealed here is that God's justice looks more like generosity and is so much different than what our justice looks like. I suspect he is calling us to be a people who not only anticipate God's generosity, but he would like for us to be a people who display God's generosity. What if we were people who were as scandalous because of our generosity as this vineyard owner was? What would the world look like? What would our lives look like if we displayed the generosity of the vineyard owner? So as we have talked through this, I want to ask, what has your mind gone to? What has risen for you? What has come to your attention as I have spoken, as we have read through this parable two or three times, for our parable-telling Jesus has wanted to disrupt you, but I have no idea what that might look like. Because at the same time, He's wanting to disrupt me. So I invite you to reflect as the musicians come back to the stage to lead us in our final song. I invite you to reflect what is it that God wants to disrupt in your life that helps you look more like that vineyard owner than those who had been working all day. May that be your reality. May that be what God does in your life. And may God disrupt you in such a way that the world says, wow, look at their generosity and love for those who don't belong, who don't deserve, who are unworthy. Amen.